Hello and welcome to the January edition of my book club. Uh, this month we read James C. Scott's Seeing Like a State, How Certain Schemes to Improve the Human Condition Have Failed. This is a very interesting book, and like a lot of the books that we're covering in this book club, it's quite deep. It's one that you really have to think about because it pervades a lot of aspects. On the surface, the book is about how a failure of a certain type of ideology, what James C. Scott calls high modernism, this idea that there's this utopian vision that we can have a society that a rational planner who's removed from the conditions of the world can figure out everything on a piece of paper and pencil and if we just have the will and power to implement this vision we can have a better society this has come across in many situations from the ideologies of communism and fascism that were really big in the early part of the 20th century to the uh architecture of people like Corbusier who decided to rebuild huge visions of what cities like Paris for instance should look like and in some cases actually was given power to design uh, cities or his followers were able to design cities such as Brasilia the kind of modern capital of Brazil and uh, places in, in India and other places that were designed from scratch. This is also an idea about modern agriculture, about the idea of monocropping, of making very large plots of land grow in an identical, genetically identical strain of wheat or corn and the problems that can arise from that. So on the one hand, it's about this failure of this ideology, but I think the real deeper lesson of this book, and the one that will interest the listener here if they're not particularly interested in abstract political philosophies, is the idea of uh, mitis and techni. And mitis is this Greek term, which James C. Scott borrows, to refer to local knowledge the ability of a system to encapsulate a lot of intelligent behavior about things without necessarily those ideas and knowledge being written down anywhere in a book. And the failure of this high modernism ideology directly relates to a failure to appreciate Mitis in the world itself. And I think this is where this idea can have a real practical effect because if you can start to appreciate this tacit knowledge, this knowledge that exists all around us encoded in the intelligent behavior of complicated systems where nonetheless there's no outside observer that really understands how it all works or can encapsulate it in a book or a talk or a lecture or the mind of an expert or bureaucrat really has a lot of practical implications for how you live your life, how you make decisions as an entrepreneur, in your career, in your social environment, in your relationships. I would say it influences a lot more than just one's political beliefs or if they do happen to wield some kind of power, uh, the policy decisions that you should be making. In the book, uh, James C. Scott introduces many typical examples of the failures he talks about. So in the opening chapter, he gives what I think is one of the best examples, even though it doesn't have anything to do with politics at all, which is the failure of scientific forestry. Now, scientific forestry was a big idea a few hundred years ago, which was that before that, forests were just forests. They were just natural places where the government or the king could send people in to get some lumber if it was needed. Uh, but it was also an area that was largely unknown. It was a part where local villagers could go in and do foraging and hunting and 
essentially there wasn't a lot of state control over the forest. And so the scientific approach to this of forestry was to clear cut the forest and plant perfectly road monocultures of a particular fast-growing tree. And the idea at the time was that this would be much more efficient. The forest, of course, is trying to do lots of different things at once. It's trying to be an ecosystem for animals and plants. And, and if you were to just make it very focused in its function of producing a particular type of tree, you could have high-quality lumber. You could know exactly how much lumber you have. You could control it very adequately. And the problem with this approach is that you were destroying a local ecosystem, that there was this complex network of relationships between the plants, the animals, and the people that were interacting with the forest. And by clear-cutting it and using this scientific forestry, you were imposing a logic on the system that, although it seemed to be superior than the chaos or the seeming chaos which existed prior to it, was really a gross simplification of what is necessary to succeed in that kind of uh, tree-growing agriculture, if you will. And so what happened was that actually growing trees takes a long time. And in the first batch of trees, maybe that first century even, there weren't problems with this approach. It had higher yields, higher outputs, and everyone was patting themselves on their back of this is how you're supposed to do modern forestry. This is how a modern state runs their forests. And it was really only... Uh, over a hundred years in, that the problems of the ecosystem collapse started to show. The problems with the fact that now relationships between plants and animals were so wildly distorted that you could have pests that would run amok and could wipe out entire crops, that you could have problems with fertilizer because the nutrient balance of the soil was disrupted so that the trees after a first de uh, generation depleted that resource and then they wouldn't grow as well. So this forest analogy, I think, is a really typical one because it applies to lots of situations. And in the book, James E. Scott applies it to uh, programs to modernize Tanzanian agriculture, Soviet collectivization schemas, um, the architecture of Le Corbusier, where he had big plans to redesign Paris along a modern scheme and even was given the power, at least to his ideology, to redesign cities or build cities anew in new governments such as Brazil and Brazil, and these were nearly total failures, that they were able to execute the idea, but they didn't function as cities for the same reason that the scientific forests did not function very well as forests, that they were destroying a much more complicated system that only from the outside seemed like chaos, but really embodied a lot of intelligent behavior. So, there's a couple main ideas in this book, and I want to just briefly discuss them before I move on to the discussion of the book with my guest Trent Fowler. The first is that these ideas failed largely because of a failure to appreciate ecological or organic complexity. That there was a failure of the state or the person who was in charge to appreciate that there was a lot that couldn't be known about the system just by drawing down an abstract idea with a pencil and paper. A very common, perhaps even overused expression is that the map is not the territory. And the failure of high modernist ideas were very much that their map was quite simplified, but that they didn't know it. Now, there's another twist to this story, which I found very interesting, because you might look at this story and be like, well, of course that wouldn't work, and we know better now. 
But why did they do it? And in particular, why in many of these cases did the people in charge continue to push these schemes when they were shown to be untenable, when they were shown to not work? And one of the ideas that James C. Scott brings up is that even though from the functioning of the efficiency of whether it's a farm or forest or society, these schemes didn't work, they did have one powerful advantage. And that powerful advantage is they increased the legibility of the system that was being under control. Think of an actual forest. It's got random trees, it's got dead logs everywhere, it's got random wildlife and different types of plants. From the outside perspective of a state, particularly pre-information technology, it was very difficult for someone, let's say a king, to send their subjects and say, how much wood is there in this forest? You couldn't know. And indeed, this lack of legibility of the state impacted their ability to control it. You could have villagers and people who were not technically allowed to be pilfering from the state's forest to go in there and do their foraging and do their regular business and carry out logs and do things like that because of this illegi uh, illegibility of the forest. And so one of the prime advantages of this kind of simplification schema has been to impose an understanding that the state has onto the ground itself. So this is the opposite of, you know, building a map from the territory. It's saying, let's take our map and make the territory more like it. And by making it more like our map, it makes our map better. And if the territory is too complicated to render in a map, then making it more simple, even if this disrupts the complex interweb of relationships, even if this is a failure from the point of view of public welfare or, or efficiency, it does have an advantage in terms of control. And one of the things that I found really interesting in this discussion was how this tendency towards simplification to increase legibility is not something that's unique to the last century where we had this sort of rise of uh, industrialization and all these uh, overblown uh, pronouncements about rationalization of, of human life and, and utopian visions of society. But this is something that extends back since the beginning of the very infancy of original nation states. One of the ideas brought up is that last names are very much an idea that comes from the top down, that to give someone a last name is necessary for the state where you need to aggregate large amounts of people and understand their behavior and, and tax them and control them. But from the point of view of most of the villagers in an agricultural society, it's not that important. They live in small groups of people. They maybe only have a few hundred people tops. And so you can know people by their first name, and that's fine. You don't need to have this extra layer of control. Similarly, with cadastral maps, so ideas that coming from the state having a detailed map of who owns what land, and that in an informal economy, in an agricultural economy, this may not be that helpful, because not only may they have more complicated traditional rules about who can use what and in what circumstances, you can, for instance, pick someone's fruit that's dropped on the ground or cross someone's land to uh, use a river or access things like this. These were all understood implicitly, depending on the local circumstances, but to cut it up and say this person owns this and this person owns that often disrupted those claims and created problems at the benefit of increasing the amount of control that the state could wield over these situations. Finally, and I've mentioned it previously, but I think the biggest idea and certainly the most practical from a personal standpoint is the idea of mitis versus techni. 
So Midas is this, again, an idea of local knowledge, of intelligent behavior that's captured by a complicated system. It's not necessarily held in any formalized source. So there's no book you can read that explains how the sort of pre-modern Tanzanian agriculture actually worked. It was just a lot of people who had figured out ways to maximize the production and the yield of the land that was under their control. And often by trial and error of figuring things out and realizing, oh, you need to plant a certain amount of these plants to balance those plants and do those kinds of things. But it wasn't written down anywhere. And even if you ask these people, maybe they don't know the full reasons for why they're doing certain things. They just came out of uh, evolved practice. Techne in the, con in the contrast is this sort of formalized knowledge. What we tend to think of as knowledge itself tends to be techne. It tends to be what you can write down in books, what you can formalize as a theory, what is fully generalizable. Science itself is techne. It is a form of formalizing and generalizing knowledge. And I think this book doesn't say that techne is bad or that science is something that is overrated or that we should be ignoring that and just fall back to superstitions and traditions, but rather to realize that in a complicated system where the different parts of the system can adapt to it, that there is an intelligence that's emergent that maybe isn't inside an individual's head or inside a book somewhere, but is represented in the complex system. And now Trent and I will discuss a little bit more about this book and some of the implications of Metis and Techne and these ideas about uh, that James Scott brings up, but I think as a practical measure, this is very valuable for you when you think about how you approach certain domains of life. That if you're approaching, let's say, your business or your career or your relationships, understanding that there might be a sophisticated intelligence behind how a lot of the systems that we're embedded in operate that perhaps can't be understood by just theorizing about it or writing a book, that it can only be gained that kind of knowledge through sort of a, an empirical approach of going in there, trying stuff out, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, and encoding that in your memory. And then it's a very local knowledge so that if you move to a different place, it may not generalize, but that doesn't mean that it's not useful. So now I'd like to introduce Trent Fowler and continue a discussion of James Scott's Seeing Like a State. Today to discuss the book Seeing Like a State with me is Trent Fuller. Now Trent Fuller is a very interesting guy. He just completed a year-long uh, project to learn STEM fields, so that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Uh, similar but also quite different to the MIT challenge, a year-long intensive self-education effort. And now he's currently embarked on a new project to learn world systems. He's a very smart and interesting guy. He has a blog called rulerstothesky.com. I highly recommend checking it out. And we're going to be discussing this book. So why don't we just start off, uh, Trent, what did you think of James C. Scott's ceiling, Seeing Like a State? I really liked it a lot. It has a lot of um, these really detailed examples about how complex systems, which appear to be disordered and chaotic, actually have a kind of internal harmony that allows them to function in ways that are not always obvious to people outside the systems, you know, and, and kind of the consequences of forgetting that when you're any sort of a central planner or a bureaucrat, which I think is you know, really important. So I think that that's uh, one end of the book. Uh, a big part of it is essentially Scott's argument that a lot of these 
utopian schemes to improve human life, uh, whether they were political systems, whether they were architectural, whether they were agricultural, have often failed because they, they did not take into account these just rich systems of complexity that were that were sort of natural and already there. But I think there's also a very interesting argument here to make about learning and about knowledge itself um, near to the end of the book. So if you started reading it and you're like, where is this? Where is he talking about this? And you haven't gotten to do it yet. Near the end of the book, he introduces his Greek term, which Trent uh, and I looked up. We're pretty sure it's pronounced metis, M-E-T-I-S. But metis is this idea of uh, local knowledge that comes from interacting with the system. And importantly, he contrasts it with techne, which is this uh, formalized abstract knowledge that sits outside the system and kind of looks down on the system itself and tries to understand it. And what was really interesting for me in reading this book is that there's example after example of people kind of abstractly assuming that this simplified model they have of the system is the system itself and just not realizing that that's maybe just the tip of the iceberg, that maybe the majority, the vast majority of the knowledge of how the system works is not really contained in any book. It's not contained in some expert's head. It's interwoven in all the little actors who participate in the system. So this is not just an idea for central planners. It's not just an idea for grand architects of human society. This is an idea for you in your life because to understand anything involves taking into account that there is this small amount of abstracted theoretical knowledge that perhaps sits on this huge body of local know-how that isn't written down anywhere. So in, uh, in psychology, this is usually called tacit knowledge or practical knowledge. And for a long time, psychologists had this kind of myopic focus on the sorts of things that can be tested very easily, like you know, the ability to reason logically or the ability to make, you know, compelling analogies or something like that. It actually, it took a surprisingly long time for psychology as a discipline to realize that there's this kind of embodied knowledge that a carpenter has after 30 years of being a carpenter that is diffuse knowledge. It's usually implicit knowledge. It's the kind of thing they may not even realize that they know and can only be learned through long experience through apprenticeship, through uh, interacting with a variety of different situations that kind of talk back to you in important ways. And that seems to be, as far as I can tell, that's what Metis means. It's that practical wisdom that you get after just a long time of, of doing a lot of different things. And I think that there's a little bit of a, a judgment sort of from upon high of that people who have a lot of the technique, have a lot of this sort of formal institutionalized knowledge that's written down in books somewhere tend to look at the local practitioners as being the kind of ignorant, superstitious, unwashed masses. And what this book is really is really championing the idea that those people who in their daily life interact with the system know a great deal about it, but maybe not in a way that is amenable to a textbook. So that the farmer's who farm a particular area may know to plant crops in a certain pattern because that's what works, but they don't really know anything about agricultural science in the way that if you transplanted them to a different area, that knowledge that they had would be useless. So I think this is something that's very interesting because if you were to actually write down what are the beliefs that these people have or what are the things that they're doing, uh, it might not come out to something that, well, let's print this in a book and just share it around so everyone has it. 
it's in a form that's very difficult to remove from those conditions. It's very uh, contingent on them, but yet incredibly important. Right, right. And, and necessary for the whole system to function. And, you know, sometimes it may be the case that they don't even realize necessarily what it is they're doing. So he discusses a little bit. I think it's in the section where he's talking about Tanz- Tanzanian farmers, but where, you know, they've got like 10 crops in this one area and it just looks like this chaos. But it turns out that soil erosion is kind of a problem there and because they've got certain crops that are a little bit taller. By the time the, the rain hits the ground, it's sort of misted out and it doesn't cause as much erosion, but does manage to water the crops at the same time. And uh, you know, I, I don't recall if he discusses it or not, but I, I couldn't help but wondering, you know, I mean, do, do the farmers realize that's what's happening or is this just they've evolved this response to this problem and maybe they don't even realize that it's working in that particular way. But Anyone who comes in and says, well, we're going to centrally plan all of this, uh, you know, this agriculture will end up shaving away that complexity. Well, I like to think, I think one of actually the best examples in the book of this sort of, you could call it hubris. It's a sort of coming from the outside, not really knowing a system, not really interacting with it, and yet having prescriptions for, oh, this is how people should be doing this because... You know, I've worked it out on theory that this is better. The, one of the best examples, I think, because, you know, it's not even really a political example. It's just a pure example of how this uh, plays out is this idea of um, this scientific forestry, which was really popular, um, you know, a few hundred years ago, where there was this problem where there's just these kind of thickets of trees and forests and the peasants are coming in and stealing some of the lumber. And uh, so the sort of people higher up say, you know what we should do? We should just plant a monoculture set of trees in very perpendicular, like parallel rows of, it'll be very neat and clean. And that will be the way we scientifically manage and maximize the forest. And what was really interesting for me in reading this is that not only was this uh, just clearly an ecological disaster, but it was also the case that this was something that uh, it it took a long time to really blow up in their face because a forest can take decades to grow. So the first year, the first crop you get from the forest, it's working really well. You're getting more lumber. It's more legible. You can figure it out. And then it's only after the second or third where you've completely destroyed the ecosystem and all those little relationships between the small plants and animals and pests and stuff that were just perfectly in balance in the forest ecosystem are are collapsing. And you get, you know, uh, poor soil fertilization. You get uh, like plagues of various um, pests and, and diseases and these kinds of things, they only show up maybe 150 years after you planted this forest that for a long period of time, this idea of this is how you should do forestry stood because uh, it just took so long to realize that that's what you were doing to the system. Right. And that's actually an excellent example. It's really cool that he opens the book that way. And so I think really almost the whole book could be summarized in a simple aphorism that things are more complicated than they look. And if you ignore that, you're probably going to have a bad day. So we all think we know what forests are, right? It's a bunch of trees and some underbrush and some shrubs. But those things are woven together in a way that is spectacularly complex. And you know, we're discovering new things about forestry all the time. I, I was watching a TED Talk where they talked about how the like a, a fungus called mycelia forms almost kind of like an internet in the soil and it will allow certain kinds of trees 
to shuttle nitrogen from nitrogen rich trees to nitrogen poor trees like mother trees can kind of care for daughter trees and um, it, it turns out that there's this kind of you know tapestry through which nitrogen and other nutrients can flow and nobody knew anything about that and old growth forests over a long period of time develop what you could call dirt capital you know like the dirt is very rich there's a lot of uh, decomposed matter in it there's stored nutrients in it after a hundred years of, of growing this what was a norway spruce this one tree in these evenly spaced grids they had exhausted all that they didn't know it was there they had they didn't understand anything about the capital stored in the environment but it just ate it all up and then their second and third and fourth crops were stunted and not very good because they failed to appreciate how rich the system was because you know everybody thinks they know what a forest is and I, I think that you know for for anyone an entrepreneur or a central planner or just somebody learning things it's important to remember that uh, the map is not the territory this is a you know a pretty common saying that basically the, the the maps are not the things they describe and it's important not to get too focused on the maps and to forget that the underlying reality is always significantly more complicated and it's important to cultivate different maps and a certain kind of humility when you're dealing with the complexity of the world. So I want to challenge this uh, idea just a little bit because obviously this is a major theme of the book that, you know, as you said, things are more complicated than you think. But I don't think the average person goes around thinking that the world is a simple place and that, you know, that they fully understand it. I think one of the challenges of this book is showing how uh, not just that things are more complicated, but that they're often more complicated in a specific kind of way. And that specific kind of way is that in a system that has, um, particularly in a sociological system, but this also applies to biological or ecological systems, but in a system where you have um, intelligent actors or evolved units that are interacting in the system, that they often form this kind of adaptive equilibrium that, you know, as an individual farmer in Tanzania, maybe I don't know everything about agricultural science. Maybe I don't know about, you know, all the advantageous things that can be gotten through irrigation and, and you know, genetic breeding of different plants and this kind of thing. But what I have adapted to is that I'm in a poor condition and I have to feed my family and I have to adapt whatever I can to sort of maximize the food safety and security and, and all the other social benefits that this farm brings. And so me on an individual basis, I'm adapting to these local conditions and that this creates a kind of dynamic pattern amongst all the other farmers and all the other people who are working in this area to just sort of work within this larger system. So there is a kind of knowledge about the system, a kind of knowledge about how to farm in this environment that's not really available anywhere. It's not, no one has it in their head, but yet they all fit within the system. And if you look at the natural world, that's clearly how it operates, that, you know, plants and animals adapt to their environment and they don't really know that they're doing that. If you, you know, you can't talk to a fox and say, hey, why are you doing this and this to uh, maximize your evolutionary fitness? They don't know that. But at the same time, they often exhibit what would be to an outside observer incredibly intelligent responses to things once you understand them. So I think this also applies to a lot of other situations. You can imagine this applying to, let's say, your career. That in your career, there's probably some abstracted knowledge that you can think about how your career works and what you do to have professional success. But there's also all this local knowledge of all the other, you know, actors, all the other people who are your employers or your clients or your peers or your colleagues. 
all adapting to this sort of career environment or ecosystem. And often what you're maybe doing in your career, what other people are doing in their career is not, they may not know what they're doing. They may not have this sort of like idealized economic model of this is how my work works and this is the value I provide to society and this is what I do. They're just adapting to local conditions, but there is this kind of real intelligence to it. And so I think that kind of deeper intelligence that's not really within anyone's head, but yet is so important for characterizing the system, especially if you want to improve things on a systems level, but even as just as an individual just trying to enter into a system, uh, appreciating this kind of knowledge I think is so important. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I think the word we could use is organic complexity. So it's not just complexity per se, it's your characterization of it is very good. It's this evolved complexity. So the system needs to survive and the individual actors within it need to survive. Um, he, he uses the phrase in the book, uh, they've got to eat the results of their experiments. You know, so this is not, it's not a whiteboard exercise for them. I mean, they're going to live or die based on this. And that has a tendency to sort of sharpen your efforts and to sharpen your focus. And you, over time, you have these systems that evolve, um, ways of solving problems that, as you say, are not contained in anyone's head. So no, nobody sat down and said, well, we need to do things this way. It's just someone tried it. It worked pretty well. It spread kind of far and wide and then became part of the implied tacit knowledge of the people who are facing these ad adaptive situations. And one thing that was really interesting to me and sort of changed my mind a little bit is he talked about how you know, quote, traditional societies are not as tradition bound as you might think. They are, they're fairly dynamic. They're fairly open. And I, I guess I'd always, while I, I buy the argument of the organic wisdom of these kinds of systems, I never really realized how dynamic and open-ended this could be and how, in fact, these people are actually quite uh, quite open to new and better ways of doing things. Um, he talks about how before the vaccine, this other kind of technique, I think he called it variolation or mm -hmm. something like that, uh, had spread across four continents. So people, you know, even in these sort of traditional societies, we think of them as being kind of ossified. Um, it turns out that no, actually, it's, it's pretty dynamic and it doesn't take that long for new and better ways of doing things to percolate throughout people who are facing these similar adaptive situations because, you know, again, you've got to eat the result of whatever you do. And, you know, the, the consequences of getting it wrong can be quite dire. So I want to shift gears a little bit because we've talked a lot about how this complexity, particularly this organic complexity influences systems and how we think about who actually knows how the system works and what does it mean to know how the system works. But there's an obvious political implication of this. And this is indeed James C. Scott's main argument in the book is that people who have failed to heed this have caused a lot of human misery, even when they were trying to make lives better for people. And uh, in particular, he's attacking what he calls this high modern ideology, which is this idea of a particularly simplified vision of things as opposed to the organic complexity. This is like straight lines and edges. So if we think about the scientific forest, the fact that all the trees were planted in a straight line is this kind of vision of high modernism that it was really influential about a century ago, still has some influential adherence, but less so these days. But it was really this kind of pinnacle of rational science and enlightenment and that, you know, everyone else was sort of living in these kind of dark age backward societies where it's filled with superstition and all these harmful beliefs that were impeding how people would live. And if they could just cast those off and live according to a rational principle, things would be a lot better. And I think 
one of the things that really interested me, because I've heard this argument before weighed against, you know, like uh, the Soviet Union or, or communist sort of parties where they were overzealous in their attempt to control and, and manipulate people, even if you could argue in some cases they had good intentions. But the, the thing that really uh, interested me here in this book is he's making an argument not just for why this came about, uh, not just for, you know, the, the sort of aesthetic that drove this uh, vision, but also how from a really kind of pernicious aspect, this was really, for many cases, the state, the governing body, the nation, the government, um, that they were often moved to act in this simplifying manner, moved to act in this, making everything straight rows and lines, making the maps of who owns what land into these nice rectangular grids, even though that ignored all the like natural terrain and tradition and customs and, and, and what have you. It was because this made the population under which you were being governed legible. It made it possible to control them. It made it possible to count them. It made it possible to suppress revolution, to uh, create this kind of environment where you are carving things up and you can understand them perfectly. And that this lineage extends far beyond just, you know, the movements of the 20th century where you had, you know, communism and fascism, which are both kind of examples of this totalitarian order. But even earlier where people giving people last names, I never thought about this, that giving people last names was largely a state-led effort to control the population, that people just had one name and it was fine because you lived in a small village and everyone knew who you were, so one name was fine. But it was only when you start aggregating people in large groups that just having one name it doesn't work at that level, and so you need to start forcing people to have last names, and so you have all these you know, in, in English-speaking countries, uh, you have names like Baker and Smith and, and stuff, which were just, or, you know, Hill, or really just real arbitrary last names that people adopted for themselves when they were suddenly forced to, hey, you need to have a more unique name so that we can monitor and control you better. Yeah, so, well, there's, there's quite a lot there. So, first of all, I think that uh, your focus on rationalism is very important. So, throughout the 20th century, it, it can hardly be overstated how in love people were with this idea of sweeping away the past and reorganizing society along rational lines. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of rationality, but not so much of rationalism, this idea that really anything can be uh, subjected to dictates from on high, from a, an intellectual class that is going to kind of plan our lives for us and make sure that we do things a lot better. Uh, the great economist F.A. Hayek called this the fatal conceit. He had a book by that name, The Fatal Conceit. And basically what he was saying was the the errors of the centrally, uh, central planning attempts were primarily in over-reliance on human reason's ability to, um, to, to rationally plan something like a forest or a society that's you know, very complicated, which is not to say reason is obviously hugely important. I mean, it's a bit the main reason that we've put footprints on the moon and developed vaccines. But I think that a mature rationality must be reflective and must have an appreciation for what it can't do. And one of the things it can't do is plan the lives of thousands of people uh, while sweeping away all the metis that has allowed them to live for as long as they have. Um, and I, I think it's worth bearing this in mind because it's all too easy to say, well, early communists were just evil, but I don't think they were, you know, I think their intentions genuinely were good and they did see uh, 
what they perceived as injustices in the world, as irrationalities, and they wanted to implement something better in order to make people's lives better. But you can't get you know to the better place if you're going to ignore the complicated and organic wisdom that's evolved in people's lives. You know, and, and that's not even counting the fact that you know people tend to resent efforts to tell them to move places. You know, we we are. Uh, we exhibit a property called reactance. You know, even if a plan is a good plan, I kind of I don't really like it when somebody tells me I have to do it. Even if I can clearly see that it's a better way to do things, I so it rankles me a little bit to be told directly to do something and be given an order like that. Um, so you know, those are all excellent points and, and worth keeping in mind. And I think you know, a final thing to note is that states, by their nature, simplify. So. It's dangerous enough relying on maps, you know, when you know the territory is more complicated. Nobody can really get away from that. It's just kind of a property of human brains that the computational complexity of the world exceeds our ability to keep all those details in mind. So we have to use maps. Uh, We have to use language. We have to use simplifying tools. But states, by their nature, have, have an ineluctable tendency to force reality into that map. So maps may be limited, but that's not the same thing as saying, well, now we're going to go through and we're going to force reality to kind of look more like our maps so that we can get, you know, tax money. And part of the reason that states are able to do that in a way that, you know, Walmart would struggle to emulate is that they have, they usually have a monopoly on violence in a given geographical area. So they control the police and they control the armies. And if civil society is not robust enough, if there are not these long standing and robust institutions favoring free speech and individual autonomy, it doesn't take very long for that, uh, you know, to that, for that to become a a big mess. Absolutely. I I agree. I think it's difficult to draw very clear. uh, We were talking about this before the call. There's difficult to draw very clear political implications of this book. Like you could argue this is a kind of conservative book because it's arguing that, you know, that there's this wisdom in how things are done traditionally and that, you know, people who are progressive would like to reform society are wrong. But I don't think that's the message. And I also don't think it's a message towards a libertarian direction either, just to say that, you know, well, we should be trustful of the wisdom of markets and government is bad. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. It is the case in the book, some of the worst failures of this high modern ideology, of this idea to rationalize and uh, systematize everything and to cast away the old tradition were state-led efforts because, as you mentioned, they're the ones that when the plan isn't working, they have the most force to push it forward regardless. But I think the conservative sort of side is contrasted with the fact that these uh, traditional societies are themselves quite dynamic. That, as you mentioned, that this idea that before vaccination came about, there was this variation, this idea that people were adapting to local conditions. And I think cultures adapt and that there is a dynamic quality to it. So the people who want to look back to 1950s or 1900s as our model for how society should be are also kind of wrong in a way, that they're trying to impose a certain vision of utopian order that's wrong, that culture is dynamic and is changing. And yet the libertarians, the people who would say, okay, we should just put our trust in market, are themselves falling victim to the same kind of utopian conceit that, well, really, if you look at societies, there's no society that doesn't have some form of central government, some central arbiter that's managing things. I think what this book is really arguing against is not a particular critical vision, but just against general hubris, just the idea that one can decide theoretically how things should be 
and then that leads to a good outcome and that a much better way of doing things is to evolve it within the system right right to have an empirical mindset that many of these problems that were happening in you know in architecture, Corbusier, the uh, examples of the Tanzanian f- uh, farmers, uh, the examples of, you know, Soviet revolution, that many of these situations would have been so much more beneficial if it was like, hey, you know what, let's try this out on small scale. And if it works, scale it up a little bit rather than, hey, this isn't working on a small scale. Well, let's force it even further because we have to make sure that it works. So I think that that's something that's very interesting. And I think about a lot of my big takeaway from this book was not to, you know, inform a particular political direction, whether it's, you know, as I said, uh, libertarian or liberal or uh, conservative or progressive, but rather that looking at this book was just the idea that, wow, our political systems and the lives that we live in our, you know, in society are so complicated and there's no way that we fully understand them. So there's really going to be a case that, you know, perhaps just the way in this book, agricultural science improves so much over a few hundred years, it's quite likely that political science will improve over a few hundred years, that they will be using concepts and ideas of the sort of political ecology that we're just not aware of right now. And so it in, involves having a little bit of humility and a little bit more of a, an experimentalist or an empirical approach to let's try things out and let's not uh, pre-convince ourselves that we know what is best for society. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, James Scott is clearly not a libertarian. Um, and he has sensed a sort of reticence to draw too heavily on the classical liberal tradition. He, he does mention Hayek a few times, but uh, I watched some interviews in preparation for this conversation. And he said that you know he didn't much care for Hayek when he was younger. And he would have considered it inconceivable that someday he would have anything at all good to say about Hayek. So he, he's definitely not trying to uh, you know feed red meat to the lions of liberty. But um, one of the questions that I had sort of coming away from the novel, or not the novel, the book, um, is that you know, not every form of centralized control is totally awful, right? So, I mean, there are better and worse attempts to uh, manage cultural evolution in history. And as you say, that cultures are not static. They don't just stay somewhere forever. So a conservative yearning to return to 1950 is, you know, completely impossible and, and probably wouldn't be that good even if, if you could affect it. So the question is, how can we try to steer cultures in, in directions that are productive? I mean, assuming that we can't just decree the you know golden path from on high, so what should we do then? And I think, you know, keeping the humility in mind is important. And I think that starting with small units and testing it is obviously a great idea. Uh, scale has a lot to do with it. So, you know, planning for a million people is not anywhere near as difficult as planning for, you know, 200 million people. The kind of uh, the underlying uh, populational substrates you have is also important. I mean, how to what extent are the people on board with the plan? Uh, you know, I mean, is this something they're interested in? Do you have a popular mandate? Are they going to cooperate with you or or are you forcing peasants to move at you know, gunpoint, essentially? Um, you know, and, and when planners have a certain respect for personal autonomy, I think that's also really important. And then if you use incentives, you know, incentive programs, instead of just telling them to do something, I mean, cultures clearly are open ended and it's not impossible to have them evolve in more positive directions, but evolve is the appropriate word. You know, it's law is some, is a tool that you should use with a lot of discretion because, you know, I mean, things can go obviously horribly wrong, but if you, if you can get sort of bottom up, uh, popular support for an idea, 
then things go a lot more smoothly and it's it's far more organic. So I like to usually end these uh, these ones on on somewhat more of a practical note. And I know we've been talking a lot about political science and ideology and and these complex systems. But I think for the average person who's maybe listened this far and maybe wants to know what's a practical takeaway of this, I think the big idea, look at the systems that you're interacting with in your life and ask yourself whether they have this kind of organic complexity to them. It's clear from the book that there are situations where highly uh, theoretical top-down planning can work. He gives the example of the space shuttle program was, you know, an inc- or the Manhattan Project were incredibly successful, you know, theory-driven efforts where it was a top-down bureaucracy driving a result and they worked. So it's not the case that that never works. And I don't think it should be misconstrued that way. But rather it should be looked at that when there is a great chance that you do not understand the system that you're into. And that could be because it involves a lot of actors. So it's just not possible complexity-wise to understand all of it. Or it could just be because your map is too rough of the terrain. It, It proposes a certain attitude of approaching things that involves not having too many preconceptions about it, going into it, seeing where things, feeling things out. And I think that that is really, in a, in a large way, what the individual actors who built these sort of traditional systems originally did, is they, they tried stuff out and, oh, this doesn't work and I'll, I'll try something else. And so I think that this is true of entrepreneurship. Certainly, it is a lot more feeling out than applying an abstract theory. It involves this with your career. I think it involves this with your relationships with other people, that there's certainly a large element of don't go into it with a preconception of this is what my career needs to be like, or this is what my relationship needs to be like, or this is what my business should be, but rather something that involves more feeling things out, something that doesn't preconceive that this is how the world has to work and everything needs to conform to it. And if it if it doesn't conform to it, let me force it even more. <laughs> and so I think that this kind of humble, flexible approach, um, I think, is is the correct approach in many in many uh, domains. And I think that this is almost a rediscovery of a kind of older wisdom. I've talked a lot about Eastern philosophy in many of the episodes uh, of this here. And although this book had uh, very little to say about, let's say, Zen or Taoism, I feel that there there's a certain sense that they encaptured a certain truth to political wisdom that took a long time to be rediscovered in the West, that the West, starting with Plato and Socrates, kind of had this, you can know everything about a system from kind of a theorizing point of view. And there was a real sense that, you know, Confucius and Lao Tzu, uh, didn't didn't believe that that they said no you actually can't know everything about a system and that it requires this kind of flexible empirical uh, give and take approach to things and so I think if you're going to take away any message from listening to our conversation about things it would be that it would be to uh, see where you're interacting with things and if you are running into walls if you're bumping your head a lot of cases it might be because you're trying to impose your vision of things rather than trying to be flexible with the system and really listen to it and learn what it's telling you. So I want to, on that note, I want to thank, uh, thank my friend Fuller for joining us. Uh, he has a great blog himself where he's discussing things. I'm very excited about his new project. And uh, if you want to check out his blog, that's uh, rulerstothesky.com. Uh, do you have any other th- thoughts you'd like to share to end us off, Trent? No, I think that's a great encapsulation. I think that it's important to take a reflective, 
uh, ecological approach to solving problems and, you know, especially to find people who are doing the thing that you're trying to do well and sort of emulate them, you know, instead of, it's not always right to sit down with a book and a piece of paper and a, you know, graphing calculator. Sometimes you just need to find people who are really good at this and do whatever it is they're doing. And you can sort of, you know, iteratively approach their better performance. So I think that's, it's really important and a nice practical lesson you can take from this. Absolutely. And I, I want to say that uh, next month uh, for February, we're going to be doing uh, The Elephant in the Brain by Robin Hanson and Kevin Simler. So stay tuned for that. We'll be having another discussion uh, with that soon. It's a very interesting book, again, on themes of we know less than we think we know, and often what motivates us or what guides a system is not what we expect. So this is a recurring theme. All things are connected. Uh, I will talk to you then.